This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson, and thank you for joining us for episode 42 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today began his firefighting career in 1994 in his hometown of Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. He served as lieutenant with the District of Columbia Fire Department and was chief of training for the City of Columbia, South Carolina. He currently serves as battalion chief with the City of Salisbury Fire Department in North Carolina. He is the founder of Combat Ready Fire Training, which delivers fireground tactical training courses to firefighters all over the country. He's presented at FDIC and has been featured in firefighting periodicals such as Fire Engineering Magazine. He's also amassed a pretty large following on social media for his passion and valuable training advice. It is my pleasure to welcome Chief Nick Martin. Hey, so I really appreciate you agreeing to to come and talk with us. So if if you don't know, uh, I don't know if I provide enough context through email. We're a Fire Dog podcast. It's an Air Force-affiliated podcast air force fire protection um and so i I came across your name a lot of people have mentioned you i've seen a lot of stuff uh, on social media about you and i just thought it would be beneficial to talk to you and you know see what kind of advice you can offer us based on all the all your content on social media and all your experience it's always nice to just talk to different people and see what we could do better in the air force as firefighters um yeah, so before we get into it, sure. though, I'd like to, you know, if you could give a quick overview for those who don't know you, you know, where where you've gained your experience, where you work now, and uh, stuff like that. Sure, so uh, my name's Nick Martin. I, I started uh, in the fire department um, in 1994 in my uh, hometown uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I uh, started very young in the volunteers and, and kind of just, you know, always knew um, that, that, that was the path I wanted to take and, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I was, you know, very, very fortunate that kind of basically right out of high school, um, you know, I kind of even rewind, I had gotten a lot of training, you know, in, in high school through the volunteers and then right out of high school was basically, um, fortunate enough to get hired pretty much right away, um, into some of the, uh, smaller, um, you know, kind of combination fire departments right on the, the borders of Philadelphia and the surrounding counties. Uh, worked there for a number of years. Um, went and got my, my paramedics, you know, up there um, because that was kind of the way to get uh, hired back at the time or, or even even through these days, I guess. And um, so I worked there for a number of years. And then uh, eventually I just kind of wanted to get on a bigger department and uh, have some more experience. And, you know, back at that time, Philadelphia was uh, pretty much not hiring, um, you know, for many years. So I kind of ended up looking a little bit south to the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area, which was, you know, only about 90 or so minutes away from me. So uh, there's just a lot of jobs down there. And uh, so I just saw a lot of opportunity and I ended up um, moving to uh, Prince George's County, Maryland and was a a live-in firefighter. Um, meaning that I, I basically lived at the firehouse in exchange for room and board, you know, ran calls. Um, and it was a live-in at the Kentland Volunteer Fire Department in Prince George's County, right on the border of the, the District of Columbia. And uh, again, was very fortunate to get um, also picked up, you know, as a full-time firefighter with the city of Fairfax, Virginia, uh, in Fairfax County. Uh, worked there for a uh, only, a, you know, a little bit less than a year um, before getting hired by the District of Columbia. So I got, um, you know, picked up um, by the Washington, D.C. Fire Department, went through the academy, 
came out and uh, went to Tower Ladder 3, which is the uh, White House ladder truck in downtown Washington. Worked there at that firehouse for a number of years and then went up the street to uh, Engine 11 and Truck 6 in the Columbia Heights section of the city, where I did most of my time uh, as a firefighter on the engine and truck there. And then uh, eventually promoted to sergeant and uh, as a sergeant was assigned as a battalion chief aide. Uh, in the 5th Battalion, and then later transferred to the 2nd Battalion, which is kind of like the U.S. Capitol area, um, and then eventually promoted to Lieutenant. Um, so I was a firefighter in the district for, uh, you know, quite a, you know, for a good chunk of my career, and then uh, after D.C., uh, was fortunate to get picked up um, as the uh, Chief of Training um, for the City of Columbia, South Carolina, which is the uh, capital of South Carolina. Uh, pretty large department there. I ran the uh, training bureau there for about six years um, before moving uh, a little bit closer to home back up north towards the Charlotte area uh, where I'm currently a battalion chief with the city of Salisbury, North Carolina. Yeah, it's a pretty extensive resume. I didn't realize that you did time in PA. I, well, I noticed that there was a lot, I felt like there was a lot uh, covering your time in South Carolina. I could be wrong on that. So I guess what made you go down to South Carolina is just uh, just maybe a family dynamic or something like that. I mean, that seems like a far trip south. Well, I mean, it, it was kind of like a perfect storm of uh, yeah, gotcha. personal and uh, professional factors. You know, I was living in the D.C. area. To be honest, um, at the D.C. at the time, um, the the D.C. fire department was pretty screwed up. Uh, we had a really bad fire chief that was driving morale straight into the toilet and um, you know you combine that with the fact that it's also one of the most expensive areas in the country to live um, you know most of the guys on the job there I would say most of them don't live within 90 minutes right. of, of where they work you know we've guys that lived in North Carolina that lived in Pennsylvania that lived in West Virginia you know and that kind of stuff and I was you know shopping around for where am I gonna live you know and everything everything you know cost a half a million dollars or more and was 90 minutes of work and you know one of the things i've kind of learned is like you know it's a uh it's a recipe for change whenever you know you're not happy with your current situation and sure. an opportunity presents itself you know and uh, and that's what happened is you know not everything was hunky-dory there you know at that time and you know this opportunity came up to go to columbia um, obviously, I do a lot of teaching on the road, and I had taught in Columbia just about a year prior. I had done a one-week-long um, truck company academy um, down in Columbia doing hands-on stuff. And I, was, you know, I went down there. It was like, you know, 75 yeah, degrees and sunny. And oh. in February, in February <laughs> yeah. there were palm trees everywhere, you know. And every day that the guys came to, came to class, we were down there for five days, every day they came to class, they were talking about like the one or two fires that they had had the day before. I was like, man, you know, these guys go to a ton of fires. Right. It's beautiful down here. The cost of living is a lot better. And that's how that happens. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I'd like to get into yeah. some of your content, some of the stuff you teach. Um, really just kind of explain maybe, you know, as if you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand your, or has never seen your stuff at all, you know, exactly what combat-ready firefighting is. I mean, I think you could pretty much figure it out and deduce what exactly it is, but, uh, like, in your own words, what exactly is combat firefighting? Well, I mean, it kind of all goes back um, to uh, this guy named Pete Lund, um, which was a, you know, some guys listening may have heard him and may 
not have heard of him, um, but you know, when I met uh, Pete, he was had about 32 or 33 years, I think it was, as a firefighter in the New York City Fire Department, and he was actually a, a lieutenant assigned to Rescue Two in Brooklyn. Um, and Pete, uh, Pete's son and I. Uh, we're living firefighters together at Kentland, and that's kind of how I got to meet Pete. And so, bottom line is, you know, Pete was this 30-plus year veteran of the world's largest fire department, and had spent, you know, you know, most of his career in the rescue companies, including, you know, obviously his present assignment in Brooklyn, and and then prior to that, you know, spending like 10 some 10 plus years uh, at Rescue Three in the Bronx, uh, mostly during like the mid 80s. <laughs> at the height of what, you know, many firefighters know to be, like, the war years, you know, and uh, so this guy was, this guy had, like, you know, he was in all the books and videos, literally, um, that, like, I had grown up, you know, reading as a buff, and, like, you know, his, he had just done the career, kind of career that, that people could only dream of, um, you know, and I could, you know, in, in a lot of the classes, I tell some pretty long-winded stories about, you know, uh, where I was, personally and professionally when I met Pete and what I was doing wrong, you know, with my, with my career. And, uh, you know, bottom line is I met Pete and I realized, man, this guy is like, he's, you know, over twice my age. He, he's been in the fire department longer than I've been alive. You know, he, he works and has worked in some of the most busy companies, you know, in the world. Um, and, you know, here he is, he, he's doing everything right, the right way, every day, no excuses. You know, who am I, you know, to be right. doing any different? You know, I'm, I'm, I, should be more, I should be more agile and nimble. I'm a lot younger than he is, you know, and uh, I certainly don't have the kind of time and experience that he has. You know, who am I to be doing anything, you know, any less than this guy is? And, that, and that's how Pete ran his company is, you know, that I'm not, not to be like all FDNY-ish, I'm, I'm not trying to be that guy, you know, but, but the, the rescue companies, you know, at, at least as I've been told in stories, are hand-selected companies, it's the traditional old school, you got to go to the captain and like, you know, you know, ask to get assigned there and they pick you if they want you and it's kind of like this very hand-selected environment full of, you know, some of the best yeah, fire. Consequence of incompetence is probably pretty much know, death or serious injury or you know because oh, yeah. stakes are so high for sure i mean b b because well all those companies go to i mean again i don't work for new york so i'm just kind of using my what i've been told but all those companies go to is technical rescues and working fires right. that's all they go to you know and uh so you know you would think you know some people might think in an environment like that that, that with that kind of exposure that, that kind of you know operational tempo and that kind of experience that those guys might chill out and like you know, you know, hey man, I'm I, you know I go to a lot right, of fires, right. I know when to amp it up and I know when to slow it down. But you know Pete's mentality, and that's where that that's where that phrase came from was you know when you come to work in his yeah. company, you're no slack, right? Ready every day, and, and if you don't, that's right. If you don't want to do that, there's a couple hundred other firehouses yeah. in the fire department you go work at. So I got my my friend Chris Boykley on. You know, uh, right. He's I, also in the Air Force, but he also works at Indianapolis Fire Department in Indiana. Uh, and he teaches a course for yeah. the uh, for the Air Force, the Air Force Reserves. Um, I don't know, Chris. You want to talk mm -hmm. any at all on that, or just introduce it real quick? Uh, but uh, I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities between what you're explaining in the course that uh, Chris hosts. Yeah, 
Yeah, Chief, we, we yeah. talk a lot about during the course uh, some stuff I've heard you um, speak on where it, it it's never, you know, one catastrophic um, issue that causes, you know, a line of duty death or, you know, makes a, a fire go well or not. You know, it's a, I've heard you say, you know, it's, it's all about the little things, you know, going right at everybody's respective levels that make something successful or, you know, a failure. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of the no slack mentality. What you're, what you're saying by being combat ready. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's like, well, depending on what area of the country you live in, a couple of specks of snow isn't a problem, you know. But when they get a couple million friends, now you got an avalanche. You know what I'm saying? And that's, you know, that's, you know, I, I've heard it said a million different ways. You know, I've got a couple of friends uh, up in the Bridgeport, Connecticut Fire Department. You know, and, and years ago they experienced a very unfortunate double line of duty death and you know talking to one of the officers that was heavily involved in that incident you know his his first sentence about it was it was the perfect calamity of errors you know it's it's never one thing like you hear these stories and you talk to guys involved in these tragedies and, and, and it's, you just you hear the you hear it, when they tell you the story right, you hear right. the train coming down the tracks because you know the ending you know you know the ending now so you can hear that coming but a lot of times, you know, in, in the moments, days, weeks, or years leading up to these events, nobody nobody hears the train coming because they don't know the ending yet. They don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, that's that's kind of what it's really all about. Nick, I'd like to talk about specifically Air Force firefighters. So we get, you know, it's a military recruitment process. It doesn't work like a traditional fire department. Um, sometimes you might get some folks that don't necessarily want to be firefighters and <clears throat> You know, it's no less important to be a firefighter in the Air Force. You know, although we have a lower call volume, it's still, you know, somebody's life potentially on the line and you need to get all the little things right and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, my question for you is how would you go about trying to make someone that may not want to be around combat ready or, you know, at least as much as they could be? Yeah, you know, again, that's, you know, the... The life in the military, you know, though I have new, you know, numerous family members that are, you know, full-time military. I mean, life in the military is not my experience. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know all the nuances of that selection and how that life goes and everything. But you know, I, I have to assume that anybody that joins any of the branches, you know, is doing so sure. because they want to serve. You know, because they want to they want to serve others. They want to protect others. You know, they want to do something for others. So. You know, I think the first thing there that, you know, obviously is you have to explain the mission. You know, people have to understand, you know, what it is we're trying to do, you know, where they fit in the system and what the consequences are um, of a failure to perform, you know. And I think a lot of times what does stuff for most people is is to help them understand that the, the consequences that I'm talking about anyway are not for them. It's not It's not getting a poor performance review or it's... It's not even themselves getting hurt or something like that, you know. But the consequence is that if you're if you don't know your job and do your job, then you could be standing there and watch somebody else die. Where you know, had you known what you're doing, you perhaps that outcome could could change, you know. And so there's almost a little bit of kind of scaring them into it, I guess, a little bit. But I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, how quickly this can get real serious um, and you know once it does 
once it starts to, there's not a pause button, there's not a rewind you button, you don't. Um, and you don't get the, the yeah, there's either there's not a magic light switch to go, oh, oh crap, I didn't realize we were going to have a real fire. I need to figure out what I'm doing right now. Like, and it, it's not going to happen. Like, you know, it, and and that's why you know you kind of you know one of the things I always talk about is, and I, I believe it. You know, two two things. You know, is number one, most of the outcome of your next fire or incident, whatever you want to call it, whether it's a fire or whether it's a technical rescue or, or whatever, but most of the outcome of whatever your next serious incident is 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 already determined. You know, something could happen before I finish this sentence, and if it does. You're gonna you're gonna go at it with what you got right now, you know, with the people, with the training and equipment that you have right now. Like it, something isn't going to miracle it's miracle itself into place instantly just because something serious has happened. Like, you know, that next incident has has been determined, you know, long before the bell rings in terms of how we do or we don't prepare ourselves in, in all those categories of, of, of plans, you know, training, equipment. You know, et cetera, and and another more scary category kind of links up to what I was talking about before, and this is a sad a sad thing, you know, maybe upsetting thing to say, but you know, I, I think you know we can also argue that that quite a that quite a number of line of duty deaths are determined in advance, and that's really disgusting to talk about or think about because you're saying that we we knew somebody was going to get killed and maybe we could have prevented it. But you hear that when you talk to people that are involved in these events. You hear them say, man, we, we knew about that building. We knew about that staffing problem. Right. We knew about that person or the equipment issue, the training, all these things that we knew Probably about. Like what those are is those are specks of snow. And, and if, we, if, if, we were, if we were able to pull those specks of snow away before the incident happened, then maybe we wouldn't have had an avalanche. Maybe we would have. But, you know, maybe, maybe it was going to take... 10, you know, 10, you know, critical incidents or critical, critical points to cause the, the, the tragedy. Now, if I can pick that away to seven or eight, maybe it doesn't happen. Or, or maybe it happens in a less severe form. I don't know. But, you know, it, it's definitely all related. Gordon to Graham calls those problems lying in wait. Um, exactly. Pr- predictable, yeah. predictable surprise. You know, there was a, a great speech I listened to. Um, by uh, uh, a former astronaut. Um, I wish Mike. I feel it's Mike McLean. I don't want to butcher the name <laughs> since this is being recorded. But uh, it's a great speech about the yeah, challenges. Yeah, it's normal- exactly normalization of deviance. Yeah, is what it is. Hundred percent. Yeah. And, yep. And if you look at that, you can see it everywhere oh, yeah. in the fire yeah, service. You see everywhere. it all over the place. And I think, from a leader perspective, as you know, a leader within my department, and it's it's. Um, it's our responsibility to point out and try to get after those things and even at the lower levels, but especially like the company officer level and the chief level, like you can't ignore those things. If you think it's going to make somebody mad, I mean, you really have to get after that stuff. Cause again, like you said, you know, responsibility is so heavy and the consequences of failure could be fatal, you know, uh, yeah. to get a little bit more granular on things. I mean, I, my next question for you was, you know, how do you change a department's culture on training? If, you know, if you only get, cause some departments out there in the air force, um, we have over a hundred, you know, we have a, quite a few, but they're pretty small. You know, the installations are relatively small. There's a couple of really big ones out there, but on average, I'd say most get about 500 calls a year, which is, you know, really low. And so, you know, how do you establish a training culture that is solid 
and has the people prepared for the worst possible um, circumstance, you know. And, and within those departments, you get a few minimizers, and I, I think I've read you call people minimizers somewhere, and that's why I use that word specifically. But you'll get those folks that say, ah, nothing ever happened, it's not that important, it's only 500 calls a year. And my question for you is how do you, beyond explaining the why, is there anything more you could do in departments like that? Well, I mean, to kind of look at it from another side, I mean, you know, call volume is not necessarily indicative mm-hmm. of call severity. You know, I don't know, again, exactly what the uh, breakdown of call volume, you know, in the... In the largely EMS, largely um, aircraft. ...might look like. Yeah. So, you know, but, I mean, you know, again, I mean, same thing. I mean, I, you know, I worked on an engine company that ran 6,000 calls a year. Now, don't get your own. Don't don't get it twisted. That's a lot of blood pressure you took. You know what I'm saying? That's not all house yeah. fires. You know, <laughs> unfortunately. But you know, one of the problems there was um, that uh, we were very busy, and uh, you know, it was also a, a paramedic engine company, which and it had to do with you know delivering EMS care, which was something that was the brass was really tracking statistics on. And so the end of you know the point being that we had a problem in that company that it was very difficult to train because they didn't want you to go out of service um, because of the response times and uh, you know every time you started to do something another footprint came in you know and so it was very discouraging um, you know to do that and and the other side of it was there were a lot of guys that thought I'm on one of the busiest engine companies uh, in this city man I I don't need to go out there and stretch lines I'm a pro you know, I'm one of the guys that does, we do 6,000 right. runs a year. You know what I mean? And, I mean, so I think there's a couple of things you can look at in there. Number one, you have the opportunity to train where most other people don't. You know what I mean? There are a lot of other departments, a lot of other departments out there that are too busy. Uh, and, and that's not making an excuse for it. It's just, there, you know, there are factors like what I just, just, just described where the guys don't have the opportunity. And, and in an environment like that, you, you do have a little bit more opportunity. And the other argument is, 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 you know, if you are not running those, uh, if you're not running those calls all that often, or you're, you know, you're not, if your structural incidents are low or those kind of things, then, you know, there's a higher argument there to make sure that that's what you're training on because you're not getting a lot of experience in it, you know, in the street, you know, I have had a lot of experience working with, um, you know, uh, military fire departments, whether they're either um, uniformed members or, you know, whether they're military members full-time or whether they're um, civilian firehouses on military bases. And, uh, you know, I don't know where this is an option or where it's not, but there's a lot of them out there that have sought to kind of address that or increase their experience by, you know, getting automatic aid agreements um, mm-hmm. with the neighboring fire departments. You know, Fort Jackson, which, uh, you know, is one of the recruit training depots for the Army, um, is in Colombia, and uh, their their ladder and rescue particularly um, would come off base and run automatic first alarms um, with the city, and they are actually next to one of the busiest fire areas um, in the city, and uh, one of the interstates that runs a lot of applications and stuff. So they got you know quite a bit. You know when they kind of got when they when their leadership got them into that, they got their their operational right. tempo went up significantly. You know, they started running uh, quite a bit of, quite a good number of fires and things like that. And there in the D.C. area, 
um, you know, as you may know, there there's a there's a, a dozen different bases for the different branches. Everything from you know uh, Andrews Air Force Base, you know, to Fort Myer and all them other places, Naval District Washington, and almost all the bases. I don't know of any of the bases that don't run uh, automatic mutual aid now with the surrounding counties. So you know, it's not uncommon now um, to to hear a an NDW engine or, you know, an engine off uh, uh, Andrews Air Force Base, you know, second or third due engine or first due truck, you know, out of fire in the surrounding county. Yeah, that's the case for a lot of bases across th those that can pull it off. You know, sometimes there's relationship issues yeah. between the town and the base, and, you know, those are few and far between. But, yeah, a lot of them where the opportunity exists, we do it. I'm in Virginia in Hampton, and we uh, our neighboring county, York yeah. County, we have a pretty solid one with them where they call us out pretty often. Um, Chris, do you have anything to add? I don't want to take up all Yeah, time. man, I, I was going to say, I, I feel like it's really a, a pretty common misconception, this idea that, you know, the busy um, fire departments or the busy apparatus are pro-training. Um, I'm sure Chief would agree. There, there are plenty of super... Um, busy companies that are incompetent and just as complacent as you know the slowest you know most lackadaisical you know DOD firefighter um oh, and so yeah a thousand percent you you can get on YouTube you can get on YouTube and see that in 10 minutes yeah it's 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 almost crazy it's almost crazy you can I'm not going to drop any names or, or departments or companies but you can get on the on, on the internet and real quickly discover that some of the busiest fire departments in the country and some of the busiest firehouses have some of the worst fire. Departments. I mean, you look at you look at the performance and the skill uh, or lack thereof, and, and you look at you know their preparedness or their hustle or their lack thereof, and it's crazy because you'll be looking and say, man, these go to fire. You guys go to fires every day. How could you possibly be yeah. like that? And it's it's. I think it just speaks to. Uh, the, the, the same issues of complacency can exist in any environment if, it, if the leadership allows it to exist. Yep. Being going to a lot of fire, going to a lot of fires, does not make you a great firefighter. You know, it, it, I think it provides you with an advantage in terms of opportunity. You have the opportunity to become a great firefighter, maybe more so than others, because you have that operational right. tempo. Right. You have the fires to go to to get the practice. You know. But not everybody takes advantage of that, um, and and I have I have I know and I have seen, you know, many firefighters in in much less busy environments um, overall become a, a more talented, more skilled firefighter that, that I would more so want next to me, um, you know, than than some of the guys that are. We certainly have the opportunity. I think the, in the air force that's for sure. The, there's definitely something to be said for getting the reps. Right, like getting to go, go to fires, oh, yeah. but they may be really bad reps over and over and over. And when you talk about the normalization of deviance, um, you know that that can happen whether you're super busy or super slow. But I, I love the idea of starting with the why, whether it's the uh, the new airman that didn't necessarily sign up to be a firefighter or the complacent twenty year firefighter who's relived his, for you know same first year of experience over and over for 20 years you know starting with the why that busiest company to you know the slowest dod crash truck our responsibility 
for competence or the situations we could be put in are the exact same and to to build off of that you know to to build a training culture over time yeah i know this is an air force podcast so i hope i'm not 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 crossing branches too much but one of the one of the best books i've ever read about you know company officer or even like you know battalion chief level leadership or i guess really leadership at any level was uh small unit leadership um by colonel dandridge malone as an army book um, it's, but it's very short, and it's and my, my understanding is he basically wrote it um, with the idea of like a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old sergeant in mind. You know, so it's it's like no frills. It's not a bunch of punchlines and you know you know you know Twitter sentences or things you could put on a T-shirt. It's pretty no nonsense and down to earth, like real-world actionable stuff. I felt. Um, and one of the things he kind of talks about in there, you know, is that you know people really kind of fall into this kind of like Punnett Square. You know, on, on one on one axis, you know, are they willing or are they unwilling to do the job? And on the other axis, you know, are they able or are they unable to do the job? You know, so you could have people that are willing and able, and, and they're your rock stars, they're, they're your examples, they're the people that you just want to, you just got to feed them and, and grow them more and show them as an example to others. And then in the other end of the spectrum, you have people that are unable and unwilling. You know, and, and the people that are unable and unwilling are your, your greatest liability, they're your biggest problem, mm-hmm. and they're the biggest threat to your team. And you know, he kind of talks about these, these four different categories of where people fall. And I think it's very relatable, you know, and I think it gives a lot of really kind of good advice on how to deal with people that are in um, those, those different those different kind of you know combinations well talking on trading culture just to you know try to get a little bit more granular with it it it, i mean based on everything that you two have set up to this point it it really comes down to leadership is your biggest variable in all of this you know if you want to establish a solid training culture comes down to how you lead as a chief officer a company officer or even as a guy on the back step that is kind of uh in a following role but still leads and himself and maybe his peers um so leadership aside, are, are there any particular, you know, tips for a training program or, or drills or, you know, what kind of, um, yeah, what kind of procedural things can we put in place to improve training? I know you spent time as a training chief, so I'm sure you got a big opinion on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it depends kind of, I think, I think it's similar but different depending on what level you're dealing with. You know, I mean, when I was the training chief of a 500-member department, you know, that's a little bit different than being, you know, the lieutenant mm-hmm. of, a, of an engine company where mm-hmm. there's me and three other people, you know what I mean? And one of the biggest things um, is scale. I mean, you know, it, the adage is true. It's these, these when you're in a larger role in a larger department, the it is very difficult to turn, to right. turn the boat, you know what I mean? And um, so I think some people think like, man, you know, well, this sucks. I'm just a lieutenant on the engine. You know, I can't do anything can't make the change you probably have more opportunity to make the change at least at a local level um, than the higher brass does you know because you're you know when you're just leading a crew of three or four people it's a speedboat you know you can not not that you should you can turn that thing every day if you want to you know what I mean you can't change um, you can't change the entire department that quickly so I mean some of it is I think kind of dependent on 
what role you're in, but I mean, my approach with everything has been a little bit to take a lot of, of kind of like what Pete, what, the way Pete kind of conducted himself. And, you know, Pete's, Pete's mentality, at least is how he communicated to me, is, you know, you, you're here to join us. We're not here to join you. You know, this is how this unit operates. You know, this is what we believe in and how we conduct ourselves. And you can either get on board with that or you can get yourself somewhere else. But we are not going to adapt our standard um, to meet your, your level of interest or comfort. You know, we are going to perform at the level that we've said we are going to perform. You know, and so I, you know, I think it starts there first with kind of identifying that overarching, you know, performance standard, and then you've kind of got to look at, you know, what it is you're doing. You know, so I mean, if you're an engine company, um, and, and then then you're focused, you know, primarily on you know getting that line in service and all the things that go around it. If you're on a ladder company, you know, you're focused on the searches and the ventilation and all the other you know supporting truck company stuff, etc. And so you kind of got to kind of got to pick through, you know, what kind of responsibilities your company or your unit has, and then you've got to say, okay, what does it? What would it mean for that to be successful? You know, I like for example, I don't know a ton about crash fire rescue, and I know that your guys probably do that quite a bit. But, you know, if, if all of a sudden I was, you know, I did take the class once, so, I mean, if somebody all of a sudden miracled me in, in charge of that, I'd be looking at it first to say, okay, you know, what what does it mean to be successful at this? You know, what are the benchmarks? Like, you know, when I look at a structural firefighting engine company, one of the benchmarks I look at is from parking brake to nozzle through the door. You know, if, if I set you up in a basic scenario where you're going to stretch a 200-foot, inch and three-quarter cross lay, probably the one of the most common hose lines in America, you know, and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of going to set you up at this standard house fire where there's nothing crazy going on, you know, how long does it take you to come off of the rig, stretch and flake the line, get water in it, have the, the members masked up, you know, complete your size up in 360, and go through the door? You know, and, and I mean, my experience has shown me that that, that scenario is a mm -hmm. sub-90-second scenario. For, for, for all-star companies, it's a sub-60-second scenario. So, you know, if you can kind of take, if you can kind of, you know, take stuff that you feel like is representative of, of benchmark skills, that can kind of give you an assessment. And then everything can be broken down into components. You know, if I observe that, that company, like the principal components of the scenario that I just talked about are, you know, stretching and flaking the line from the rig to door, you know, masking up or finishing up our PPE and completing the 360. So if, if our time is a mess, then you start looking at it and say, all right, where are we, what, what's the problem here? Like what, you know, was it their stretch? You know, is it their PPE or whatever? And then you can kind of drill down into different drills, mm. you know, or training. Could be hustle too, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, which comes down to the yeah, why absolutely. and the leadership. So I, I, I can't remember why I read this about you. I, I've read somewhere, maybe it was a website, but you uh, mentioned stopwatch training. It, it sounds like you just mentioned that. Is that what that was? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of stuff is timing, you know, because fire sure. time, and we try and act like it's not, you know, and then and then every October we go out for fire prevention month and tell, tell all the civilians how they've got to hustle <laughs> and yeah. do everything right, you know, because it's a fire and it gets big yeah. and too much time. We yeah, I got you. <laughs> you know, it's 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 very it's it's very you know counter yeah. counterintuitive, you know, but yeah, and and the other thing I think you can leverage in there, and I think you probably deal with this in the military too, is 
especially when you're dealing with a bunch of young gun type A individuals. Competition. You, know, you put that yep. element of time yep. in there, it's competition. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that competition no. is the way to run a fire ground, but, you know, sometimes a little healthy competition is, oh, absolutely. is the tie that raises the boats. Yep. You, know, you know what I'm saying? A little, a little <laughs> bit of ego in measured control oh, doses yeah. can do a lot. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Because... It, it makes it fun. It makes it competitive. A, a lot of people that we deal with, and of course, you know, not everybody, but you know, a lot of people that we deal with um, are a little athletic. You know, they like to right. they like to do something physical. You know what I mean? They want to come to work, and they don't want to. They they joined the Air Force or they joined the Fire Department, you know, because they would prefer not to sharpen <laughs> pencils. Really, you know what I'm saying? They they wanted to do something hands on. They wanted to do something, you know, for lack of a better term, manly. You know, right. and so give them. That. You know, give them give them something challenging, cool, fun, yeah. and competitive. You know what I mean? And, and that yeah, I was that part of a department that uh, you we would compete. The shifts would compete against each other, uh, fourteen ten drills. Yep. And the winner, and, and you know, there was a handful of companies that would participate, and the winner would have their picture posted, time posted. You know, they. Would, and it would be broadcasted on the TVs at every one of the stations, so that you you knew who the winner was for that particular month or whatever. And it turned into a pretty competitive uh, thing, and you know you, it, which really drove us to be better, I think personally. But Matt, maybe we do that in the uh, the Fire Dog Mentorship Facebook group, parking brake to nozzle through the door times. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's just one example, you know. And, you can set rules like, "Hey, you're gonna, you know, you can you're gonna place right, a right, cone right. this far from the building, or even masking up time, or something as simple you as know. that." You know. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I've I've done one like every year now for the past few years, like you know about throwing right. a 35 foot oh. ladder by yourself. Yeah, and this was something that just like I forget where it started. I think I was teaching a class in Maine. And one of the guys, you know, somehow a video ended up on Facebook of, like, us going over, like, how to do it. Because not everybody's got staffing, you know. And now it's become a thing that I kind of continue just, just because it's become a thing. But it's, you know, you look at the, the comments and, like, the number of people out there, like, that are just a, you know, excuse factory of quitters. You know, oh, my gosh, that's really, oh, you did it. You did it in a parking lot. I'd like to see it done in the real world. I'm like, what do you? What are you saying? Are you saying that, like, oh, if you tell me I have to go over a fence or through a field, like, all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, you're right. In that case, I wouldn't be able to do it. Like, the, the point is, like, the point right. is adapt and overcome. The point is, when, I don't care whether it's something you would always have to do or something you would never have to do, and I don't care what circumstances you may, you, you may or may not have to do it in. The point is that whatever the challenge or obstacle that's placed in front of you is, you are going to conquer you know, regardless of the circumstances around it, you're going yeah, to look for reasons why you can, not why you can't. You know, but there's that's right. You know, but you just come. You know, you, you just see the mentality in people that you know they look for, you know, something they can say like, oh yeah, well that's that's a reasonable excuse as to why it would absolutely yeah. be impossible. You know, and, and it's you know whether it's that skill or any other skill. You know, and that's a little against what I think. If you <laughs> Chris, say. you got anything else on this topic? No, that's good stuff. I'd like to know what some other uh, metrics are. I love the 90 seconds, you know, parking brake to front door, but what about, uh, you know, something truck-based? Well, so you can always break it down. Like another one, you know, I'm big on is I, I, you know, the environment I came up in, you could not mask up on the rig. You could not come off the rig with your mask on. I grew up in a city environment. 
you know, where you know you didn't know what you were going to be pulling up on. You could be taking a cross lay through a row home that's 20 feet away, you know, which of course would be easy to mask up. I've already masked up, or you could be running down an alley, you know, 300 foot, you know, or you could be going up an interior staircase to the fifth floor. So it wasn't practical, you know. So one one of the things, you know, was always the masking up quick. It was something that we had to do in the academy, and so I mean that's that's a metric within our within our department here is you've got to be able to do that. Um, in under 30 seconds, you know, like the, so the, the, the drill is you're on the rig, you have all your PPE, you have all of your PPE on, uh, except for your face mask, including your gloves. So you have your gloves on your hand because one of the things to talk about is like when you come off the rig, you ought to be doing something, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, when you start doing something, whether it's pulling a line or yeah, ladder or forcing to the water or whatever, and you don't have your gloves on, that's a real quick way to break your finger, cut your wrist open or rip your pinky, you know, rip your nail off or all things that I have done before I before this message finally got through to me. Um, and the other thing you figure out is, especially when you talk about most of the departments in the country being fairly low staffed, you know, if you're on a three-person engine company and one guy breaks his pinky in the first 30 seconds and the other guy's pumping the fire truck, that company is basically out of service, you know, or severely handicapped, you know. And then what you find out is 20 minutes later when there's a line of duty death, we're all standing around saying, well, how did that happen? You know, we realize, well... It happened because we pulled up at a tough fire, and then this guy came off the rig without his gloves on because he wasn't comfortable and didn't have good dexterity. He broke his pinky. He couldn't help. And so then the lieutenant had to go in through the door by himself because there was a reported kid trapped. And he get, that's where all the specs of the snow started adding up. You know what I mean? But anyway, you know, back to the drill. So then you, you come off of the rig, and, you know, the, 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 the timer is, you know, from going from that start position of having everything on except your mask, to being masked up and breathing air. Um, and our standard, you know, the department standard for that is, is under 30 seconds. Um, I know, you know, you know, some of the rock, some of our rock stars are doing it Jeez. under 10 seconds. Um, you know, and you look at truck company. I mean, truck company could be, um, you know, I don't know, let's put it, you know, whatever you kind of only do with forcing a VES or doing a VES. You know, so pick a repeatable scenario, you know, where you can execute a VES and start from lateral on the rig and end with exiting the window with the VES complete. Right. You know what I mean? And so you can look at these things and you can find them. One of the things that was very interesting, like we did in Columbia, and some of those can be competitive and some of them can be informative. Um, you know, one of the things that we had opportunity in Columbia was, because it's a, a little bit of a challenge city, is we had a lot of vacant buildings. And so in the training bureau, we would get a lot of acquired buildings. And we got so many acquired buildings that we were able to start getting statistics off of stuff. Like we, we had a matrix where we could say, all right, peak roof ventilation. You know, how many people does it take and how long does it take for the comp, for, you know, to complete, you know, cutting a hole in a peak roof? You know, and, you know, we could break that down into experienced versus inexperienced people, you know, two people, one person, or more than two people, you know. And we were basically able to get it down to, I think, the average was about 110 seconds from stepping on the roof. And so, you know, not only did that become a bit of a benchmark, you know, from a training comparison to compare yourself to, but at the command level, we were able to take that data and, and share it with, you know, chiefs and say, hey, look, this, you know, if you're going to expect this to be completed, this is how long it's going to take the guys to complete it. So if you don't have that kind of time, it's not worth assigning. If you don't have the right resources, if you don't have enough time, it's not going to get done. So, you know, there's a lot of that stuff can not only be kind of a benchmarking, 
um, you know, competitive personal thing, but also has you know right. broader implications. Well, switching gears a little bit, there's a couple things. I don't know how much time we got with you. I, I know you said you had to be somewhere after two, um, but I saw something where you had mentioned having chief officers covering different divisions on a fire ground. I was wondering what you meant specifically about that and the rationale. I, I imagine it's more eyes on things, but... So the, the main thing is, you know, it, it, it all, it all kind of comes back up to the top of the pyramid that when you talk about command and control of incidents, you know, the most frustrating thing, one of the most frustrating experiences that a firefighter has and most firefighters that have been around for a minute have had this experience, you know, where the chief hits the evacuation tones and pulls everybody out and abandons the building and everybody comes out, you know, cussing and spiking their helmets because, man, if we had 30 more seconds, we would have had it. You know, a lot of people have had that experience. And so you start saying, well, you know, why does a why does an incident commander abandon the they don't see they abandon don't the firefight? Yeah. And the, the answer is they think they're going to lose. You know, they, they think they think that the that you know, if, if they really understand what's going on, then they know that the worst thing that could happen here is that we're going to get somebody killed. Um, and if we do that, it's not going to be the incident commander that gets killed. And they're but right. but they're going to be responsible. Um, and so you know, we start looking at like, okay, what are these? You know, if, if we have an incident commander who gets nervous, what are they going to do? They're going to hit the eject button. Right, they're going to abandon ship, but it's okay. So, what makes them nervous? And then we start looking at different things that make an incident commander nervous. And there's a lot of things on that list. You know, probably some of the most common ones that people automatically think of are construction issues or fire behavior. And of course, they're on that list. But one of the other things that's on that list is being overwhelmed, is being task saturated. And you know, when you are overwhelmed, is a natural. It is a, a, by definition, a stressful circumstance, um, and it, it you know makes people very, very nervous. And so, what happens is on a lot of fire grounds, you know, a lot of fire grounds are run by having somebody in charge and by having everybody that's on the scene talk to the somebody that's in charge. And you know, it's just that typical span of control stuff where once you get you know more than about five-ish, you know, people coming at you. Um, you know, it starts it starts getting very hard to kind of keep track of things. So what we talk about doing is mainly kind of dividing an incident up into manageable segments, right? So, you know, whether it's a structure fire or whether it's a technical rescue incident or a hazmat incident or anything, kind of dividing it up, you know, to use the example of a structure fire, you know, you're in charge of the first floor, you're in charge of the second floor, um, you know, you're in charge of the ventilation stuff, you're in charge of the rapid intervention, and then taking somebody and putting them in charge of each one of those things, and then everybody that's on the first floor is talking to the people, talking to the guy that's on charge of the first floor, everybody that's on the second floor is talking to the guy that's in charge of the second floor, and then they are, you know, communicating that in the incident commander. So what that's doing is keeping the incident commander from being overwhelmed by, by having to think about... So you're saying somebody that's not the company officer holding so, that role. That company officer, that particular task. Yeah, well, it can be a company officer. I mean, if, when we talk about putting a chief in those positions, it really doesn't have anything... It's not like the chief has some kind of, like, expert... You know, he's in the but they'd be detached. That sense, You want somebody you know, detached like, having oversight of that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. 
Main thing, yeah, because when you're a company officer, you're engaged. You know, right. you're principally yeah. you're engaged. You're 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 on the hose line, or you're doing the search, and you're supervising your guys. When I start asking you to lead your company and also keep an eye on this entire area, you right. start robbing Peter to pay Paul. So if you don't have you know extra chief officers, well, you have to you have to make it work. I mean, the company officer is going to have to do it. But if you have the ability to have extra chief officers on the call, you know, when I go to a call, I'm, I don't have three or four people with me. I'm by myself in a pickup truck. You know what I mean? I'm a free agent. So I'm the perfect guy for the incident commander to say, hey, go up to the second floor. You've got engine one, engine two, or ladder one. Manage that yeah, and let me know what you need. And then the officers of those companies don't have to d- distract themselves from their primary goal of company leadership. Chris, you got anything on that? Yeah, that's actually something uh, Indianapolis went to a couple years ago, um, adding a second chief on fires on the initial dispatch, and that second chief's job is to take Charlie Division. Uh, it, it seemed pretty successful that you know that chief is um, you know the eyes on the opposite side of the building, and his XO, his driver, meets up with the first new chief, the IC, to take care of accountability. So. Instantly, yep. you take so much off of that incident commander's plate by giving him eyes on the Charlie side. You got a guy that's doing accountability for him, and his XO is interior safety, so his eyes on the inside. Um, I think to uh, Chief Martin's point, you know that that lets us stay offensive. You know, we're in a you know an offensive strategy more than um, might otherwise be the case with having all of that on the initial uh you know first two chief well chief i know your time is short here i'd like to give you the opportunity to kind of talk about what you do if you want um in terms of your training and uh, that's pretty much what you do right you have offer like a training service classes that folks go to yeah i mean i kind of fell into it you know you know the old adage every time (laughs) I, you don't want me to. I'm, I assure you, you don't want me doing roofing yeah. or painting for you. Um, so you know, this is kind of what I just fell into years ago. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been, I, you know, I, I've been teaching hands-on and classroom stuff at FDIC for, I guess, over ten years now. And I've been kind of just traveling a circuit around North America, speaking at different conferences and departments for, I guess, about you know, probably about 15, 18 years or something now, whatever it's been. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of, the, the categories and stuff I really kind of stick to, I try not to be a jack all trades, you know, it's mostly the structural firefighting stuff. You know, so I, I talk about the combat ready stuff, that mentality, you know, how to get yourself, you know, your, your company and, and your department aligned on that, you know, uh, do some engine and truck company stuff. You know, one of the things I had the opportunity to be involved in was kind of the, uh, one of the UL studies on fire attack and victim survivability. So I'm trying to kind of relate that into kind of some street smart stuff based on my experience on engine companies um, and, and same with ladder company stuff. And then a, a lot of what I've been doing lately is, is you know, kind of a little bit what we were just talking about there, that command and that strategy and tactics stuff. And then, you know, I, again, I, I kind of fell into that because when I became a new chief, you know, I was looking for it. You know, I was looking for where do I go to learn how to do this and learn more about it. And, um, you know, to be honest, I kind of discovered at that time it was emerging, there was an emerging void um, where a lot of the um, classic chiefs that, that many of our generation would know, um, you know, a lot of those classic chiefs have, have retired or, or some have even unfortunately passed away at this point. 
and that command and control and like strategy and tactics thing has become a bit of a void where, I mean, you, you probably know there's, you know, there's a million training companies out there and every one of them teaches engine and truck company operations and all, ha- all have good stuff, you know, but there's not a lot of stuff out there about you know, the command and strategy and tactics stuff. So that's, that's something that I, I very much enjoy because it's what I do, you know, it's what, right. it's what I do as a battalion chief and, you know, um, teaching it, you know, helps me challenge myself and uh, lets others challenge me. So it lets me kind of course correct or, you know, make sure I'm not getting stagnant or, or getting stuck yeah. in my ways or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy being able to help, you know, people that are new to that role because that, you know, that is probably the most under-trained role in the fire service. You know, most, most fire departments have, you probably, in most fire departments, you have to do 10 times more to get qualified to drive the engine than you do to have to get to be able to command the whole fire scene. You know, and a lot of people are just kind of toss the keys in the radio and say, you'll figure it out on the way. And, um, you know, it's, I don't think it's fair to them. I don't think it's fair to the firefighters that are operating under their command. And I think it limits overall our effectiveness. And that, that's kind of where I've coined up that, that term, that aggressive command supports aggressive firefighters. That's that been my experience, and what I truly believe is, you know, I, I know for sure, you know, command doesn't put fire out. Nothing about me talking on the radio in a right. white helmet is going to put the fire out. You know, the, those firefighters on the end of howling bars and nozzles, that's what's going to put the fire out. You know, but they can only hold their own for about the first 10 or 15 minutes. You know, after we start getting into uh, changing of crews, needing, needing help, or start having any kind of, like, fireground problems, you know, as every fire sounds to have, things will fall apart very quickly if you don't have somebody um, that knows what to do and also knows how to lead and organize. Well, where, where can people find your stuff at? I know you're on social media. Where else? Yeah, so, I mean, well, I'm, on, I'm on Instagram and, and, uh, and Facebook primarily. You can just look up Nick Martin on there. Um, and then our website is combatreadyfire.com. You know, one of the things that we got into as a COVID thing is it started out as like these Zoom classes, but I kind of sunk into that because my other hobby is like I'm a tech nerd and it was excuses to buy cameras and computers. So we started doing like this full like nice. online class thing, you know, so it's like it's way more than a Zoom call. I mean, like some of our classes are like eight hour master classes and in all the different categories I talked about, engine truck command stuff. And we, you know, one of the things we found with that is that became really valuable for people because a lot of uh, there are there are more firefighters than you would think of that are out there that do not have the money or the ability to go to all these conferences. They they, they don't they, as much as they want to. They can't afford to go to FDIC. Their department doesn't support them going here or there, or they're geographically isolated. Um, you know, so it's become a way to be able to also kind of get the word out to people who otherwise wouldn't be getting any word from anybody because they can't right. get any. That's awesome. Uh, well, do, you, do you have any other final thoughts? I mean, we really appreciate you coming on. No, I mean, it's, you know, I, I certainly appreciate the the opportunity. It's a, a little bit of a different thing, you know, speaking to the kind of the, the DOD or, or um, you know, military-based fire department. Certainly, you know, um, couldn't express, uh, you know, more my appreciation for, you know, all our members of the armed services, you know, whether they are uh, firefighters or, or in any other kind of mode of service, but um, certainly uh, appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, it's our pleasure, and, uh, you know, thank you for all the effort you're putting into, you know, with the fire service and, and training us and, you know, really kind of leading the frontier on that. Chris, you got anything? 
else you'd like to say? Okay. I don't. No, thanks for your time, Chief. Yeah, thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this on our website, firedog.us, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We're at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire DAWG Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow so you can stay plugged into every new episode. Lastly, we'd love it if you share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the firehouse. If you'd like to learn more about Nick Martin, you can find him on Instagram at nmartin33 or on Facebook at Nick Martin. He also has a website, Combat Ready Fire Training. It's combatreadyfire.com. This is Matt Wilson and Chris Boykley with guest chief Nick Martin. Until next time, stay safe.